Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Well, it is an absolute delight to introduce uh, our speaker who I'm going to interview uh, today, uh, because as you're about to find out, she is just remarkable. Uh, Corrie Porter is uh, the leader, the CEO of an organization that we're passionate about in this church, uh, CSW, Christian Solidarity Worldwide, uh, as it was previously known. And therefore, she spends a lot of her life, uh, she, sorry, she leads it in America. She spends a lot of her life campaigning for religious freedom, those who are being persecuted for their beliefs all around the world. And uh, we're passionate about CSW, of course, because it was founded by one of our much-loved church members, Mervyn Thomas, who's sitting just over there. Uh, and it is led internationally by one of our former elders uh, and a church member, Scott Bauer. Give us a wave, Scott. Um, and uh, deeply honored to have you here today, Scott. And... Uh, uh, I- uh, and so we're passionate about CSW, not because of its cause, but because of its connection with us. Um, Corey, uh, her story is so extraordinary uh, that we're going to, uh, I think, hear a lot from, from God through her today. And, and I'm going to sort of, as, as I interview her, we're going to drill in a little bit to this. But let me just give you the headlines so you understand. Uh, Corey uh, grew up in uh, Oxford, Mississippi. Uh, as opposed to the other Oxford, and uh, had an extraordinarily difficult childhood. We're going to talk about that. And uh, ended up homeless in Ohio and cried out to God, and he broke into her life in a a life-altering way. And her story, uh, as, as you're going to hear, long before Me Too, it's that message, long before Black Lives Matter, it's that message. She became an advocate uh, for uh, uh, fighting areas of structural injustice. And um, she was, uh, did her master's at Princeton. Uh, she became a, a campus minister there. Uh, so she's a seriously sharp cookie with a real heart for people and for the gospel. And now, as I say, she is the CEO of CSW. CSW uh, has offices all around the world, in this country, in the US, in Mexico. Uh, it has a, a NGO status at the United Nations, has offices in Southeast Asia. It is honestly uh, sort of an honor to be so connected with such an important ministry. We're passionate about that. And so for the many reasons, uh, we were keen to hear from Corey while she's in town. And as you're going to hear, she also has much to say to us about the cross. And that is uh, the series that we began last week. Um, we're, we're exploring the relevance of the cross as we approach Easter through Lent this year. And also, as you're going to hear about discipleship. So there's so many hot button issues that I want to explore with today's guest. It's going to be an interview instead of a talk. So um, by the end of her t- uh, all that you hear from her, you're going to want to give her a standing ovation. Uh, but uh, I've tried to just prime the pumps a little bit. But would you please put your hands together, please, and welcome Corrie Porter. Corrie, come on up. 
guys, I don't think I'm going to live up to that oh, the, the introduction. I'm a little overwhelmed and nervous now. It, it's, it's all true. I've been doing all my research, Corey. And, and uh, it's so great to have you here. You just, tell us where you just flew in from. Yeah, I just flew in from America, from the States, but then I jumped over to Geneva for a couple of days uh, to try to help us out in, uh, in the United Nations, and then now I'm here in London for about a week. Wait, so that's just one of those things, like just trying to help us out at the United Nations. Amazing, well, amazing. Well, they're an amazing team, and uh, we have an advocate there named Claire. I thought she was going to be here today, and she's amazing, so I just wanted to come over and serve those guys. Well, it is so good to have uh, you here. And Corey, what I want to do, first of all, let's just focus focus in on your story first of all and um, you know the last two years for all of us have been incredibly tough there are people sitting here now many watching online whose hearts have been completely shattered over the last two years because of the multiple tragedies uh, of global pandemics and other things as well and uh, we're about to hear an amazing story but it's important for people to understand the backdrop you did not have life easy. So just start by giving us an insight into some of the heartbreak that you experienced growing up and some of the quite dark places that that, that, that took you into. It's not because we want to glamorize any of that stuff, but it's important. There's a world out there that thinks, you know, Christians just don't have a clue and they don't understand we hurt like hell too. Mm. It's just we believe in a heaven as well. Amen? Amen? So give us a little bit of that story. I love that. I love that that quote, we hurt like hell too, <laughs> right? But we believe in a heaven. And um, that is how my story, my story actually starts, with the belief in heaven. Uh, my grandmother, growing up in Mississippi, guys, how many of you guys in here have seen the help? Any, okay, praise God. Some, well, here we go. All right, we can go there. So in The Help, you see this older black family who helps to care for white families in the deep Alabama South, right? So growing up in Mississippi, that was pretty much my family um, legacy and story. My grandmother was a janitor for most of her life at the University of Mississippi. Um, she helped to care and uh, cook food for white families, as well as most of her friends cared for white children. Um, but with all those racial dynamics, what I saw most of my grandmother was that she was a woman of deep faith, right? And so she would take me, my mom, my sister, everyone to church. And um, not saying I wanted to go to church, to be honest, at five and six, um, because in the South, you got to wear dresses. And I was a tomboy. You know what I mean? I had some, some swag about me. And they would always just try to stifle me. But in the Missionary Baptist Church in the Deep South, what you come into is you have on the left side, you have the motherboard, which is they're dressed in beautiful white garbs and these big, amazing hats. And on the right, you have the deacons. And I would go into church every Sunday. When I'll run up to the second pew, which is our pew. No one could sit there. Wait, so if this was your, which, where would you be okay. sitting? Uh, right here. What's your name? Tracy. I would sit You've with Tracy. Got the, you got the seat, Tracy. Yes, right where Tracy is sitting is where I would sit. Just behind the deacons, was J- that? Just behind the deacons. Okay. It kind of elevated. So you're a deacon. Yes. Now, when we were sitting there, my grandmother was never awake. No. No, no, no she no. was never awake, but she was there by spirit, right? <laughs> but when she was awake, what I remember her doing was that she would just call out to God and sitting right where Tracy is sitting and then sitting right where the woman was sitting beside her, I would just snuggle up beside my grandmother and I would be able to feel the way in which she loved the Lord, the way in which her heart beat, the way in which her body moved as the worship music would go. And so as a child, again, I didn't know exactly what was being talked about, but I knew there was something being experienced. And there would be, always be this time where in, this, in a church that she would just raise her hand, 
right, as we have done today in worship, and she would call out to Jesus. And there's something about a child seeing an adult calling out to something and clinging on to something that's not there, but it is there, that it transforms their understanding. And so that was my foundational point. But then moving forward, when my grandmother died quite early in my life, she was only 59, guys, um, years old. Um, I, it, it, was, it was heartbreaking. She was the matriarch of our entire family. And so um, when that left, I started to look for identity and I started to look what, for... What age were you when she died? I feel like I was around seven or eight. So this, this woman is, is your rock and she's also the one who kind of anchors you in God and yes. then suddenly she's gone. Gone to the place where my family stopped going to church. I mean, there was no requirement anymore. Um, there was no real family synergy. And so here I am and my grandmother and I were really close. Right, I would get in trouble, I would get kicked out of school or suspended, and she would save me from getting beat down by my mama. So I always needed her to be present. So for her to be gone, I was like, oh no. Um, but again, we were very close. So when she passed, I started looking for security in other places. And God was so gracious to me to give me a stepdad that I was really close with. Now in the South or in Mississippi, we have a lot of nicknames, and his name was Shaggy. Okay, all right. Shaggy, that's good. It's like, right? And he was cool, like Shaggy. Um, and he just, we had a great relationship. Um, in, in the South, I don't know if you guys know these type of vehicles, but they're like old school cars. Um, and it's like a 1987 Grand Prix, box top, rag top with a sunroof, okay? And I just love riding around with him and having a good time. But he would put his boys in the back, he would put me in the front, and we would ride around and we would listen to Tupac or whatever, and we would just smooth ride. So with all that being said, Pete, what would end up happening, though, unfortunately, even though our relationship was really close, um, uh, his relationship with my mom was a different type of relationship. Um, oftentimes, there is in marriages where you know the relationship would want to be stronger with the with the marriage, but the children are different. So. In that situation, um, Shaggy and my mom just had a lot of difficulties. He stepped out a lot. Um, he was abusive, by not just verbal, but also physically. So in those dynamics, what ended up happening was um, when he stepped out one time, he, um, he contracted HIV. And so in contraction of HIV in the early 90s and somewhere like Mississippi, not only are you a pariah, but it also causes this shame and this guilt where you don't seek treatment. So his HIV became AIDS, and eventually he passed, um, which was really difficult because now my mom is exposed to something that she may have as a pariah around the neighborhood. Um, he himself, um, at that time, I don't believe was a believer, and so he made actions toward other women and other people were affected too. So my family and I just had a particular um, look in the neighborhood. But with that being said, God was, again, still gracious to allow me to have that heart, that yearning for rest and learning to be back somewhere like I was with my grandmother, which led me to a, um, another great, amazing guy. Okay, this is another name for you guys. Popeye. Okay, That's do you good. guys know what Popeye, That's do they good. know? Do yeah. they know Pete? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. spinach, yes. Popeye the Sailor Man. Yeah. Big muscles yeah. like me, yeah. But he's little at first, yeah, but then he gets big. He's kind of like Mervyn. Okay, Mervyn doesn't eat vegetables. That's why he's so little. Um, but, <laughs> but with that being said, I can't see him, but I know he's frowning. Uh, <laughs> 
But uh, with that being said, Popeye was my sister's boyfriend, and I loved him because he just had this like really dominant personality. He made everyone feel safe, um, and I wanted to mimic him. So I was a tomboy. I wore braids to the back, baggy pants, boxers, and I just would run up behind him wherever he would go. Um, and then unfortunately, again, we're trying to get quickly to the point. Um, one night, he was his, his dad was the highest ranking gang member in the Vice Lord gang. Um, so there are two opposing gangs in the state. One's called the GD, which is Gangster Disciples, which was just birthed out of Chicago. And the other one, uh, I believe, was birthed out of um, LA on the West Coast, was called uh, Vice Lords. So the Vice Lords was, he was second highest ranking just because his dad was first. They were doing a drug swap with him and his boys were supposed to go to a nearby church and were supposed to, like, uh, it was abandoned church, so I guess that makes it better. But, um, <laughs> so they went to a nearby church, and at that church, they, um, um, they were supposed to meet someone, but it was actually a setup. And so his boys actually opened fire on him, shot his body several times. Now you're talking about 19-year-old boy at the end of the day. So Popeye tries to run away, and he's able to get away successfully, but he collapses in a ditch um, nearby. And so a car is driving by, I think around 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, and they see a young body laying there, so they call the ambulance. And when the ambulance get there, they take him to the hospital. And as we were told, right at the gates of the hospital, he passed away. So here you go, my grandmother's gone, Shaggy's gone, and Popeye is gone, and it's just this continual letdown of places where I'm feeling safety and I'm feeling health, but then it feels like it's being taken away. Um, and in some ways, right, that taking away is God's grace to us, because we are not supposed to rest in this life or in the people and in this life, but in him ultimately. Um, and so I wasn't yet done, though. I still had a little fight left in me. My flesh was still on fire. And so <laughs> I went on into a relationship with a guy. Um, he was actually Popeye's best friend, and we had real camaraderie there, but he was quite a bit older. Popeye may have died when I was around 12, coming into the ninth grade, so I was turning 13. So this man was more into his 20s, and we started dating. Um, yes. And that's not okay. And um, in that relationship, of course, um, it, would, it, it turned sexual. And so not only, and it's not that he took from me, it's that I gave. I gave with the understanding that there would be a promise of home there, that I would be secure there, and that I would be loved. Mm -hmm. And so in those spaces, as we know, that was a letdown. Um, that relationship became abusive. And if I knew nothing else from the relationship with my mom and stepdad, I was not going to be um, hit. So I hit him back. <laughs> And once we got done fighting, I left the relationship. Um, and so I'm going to move from the darkness right fast to something that is going to turn dark again, of course. But it's going to be a really cool light part, which is with the next relationship. And the la this last relationship before we get to the cross is a relationship with a guy named Smoochie. <laughs> I know. He was so cute. Okay. Let me, can I tell you what I liked about Smoochie Pete? Okay. Please. Okay. We so, really like him just because of the name. <laughs> he's so Okay, he got it because he's like a wooer, you know? Like, so when he was a baby, yeah. So when he was a baby in the hospital, the nurses was like, he kept smooching at them, so he got the name Smoochie. And so when I met Smoochie, he was just, he was smooching. And, <laughs> and he was just handsome and fly, and I was like, that's my husband. And so <laughs> I met him around 16, no, 16, right after uh, the last relationship ended, and I was just overwhelmed with him. And we started dating, and everything was going fine. And then eventually someone who lived beside me said, you know Smoochie sell drugs, right? I was like, Smoochie don't sell drugs. 
And then she was like, yes, he does. So I went back and I asked him, I said, Smoochie, do you sell drugs? He was like, yeah, what do you think we've been doing? I just didn't understand that that was happening. And so now you have this girl who's in this vulnerable position. I finally have found a person, but not just a person. He has a community. He has family. He has friends. He has a support system. And now I have a purpose and an identity. And so I was okay with him selling drugs. I want to just be a part of the relationship. And, of course, with those type of spaces, though, you end up, when you're in places like that, you become more like them before they become more like you. And, honestly, I desire to be more like them because it seemed like that they were happy. And, the, and that's what the world promised you. It, it looks glimmerly, it looks like gold, but it's, it's not. It's fool's gold. And so I went that direction, and not only did I start using drugs and um, trafficking drugs, um, but I also just became more and more violent, got in a lot of fights, um, got eventually kicked out of uh, high school, uh, slash dropped out, depending on who tells the story. You know? Okay. Um, and so um, when I was out, though, and this is where we get to Ohio, um, my mom was like, and this is a black mama for you, you can't stay in this house if you ain't doing nothing. So she was like, either you get a job or you leave. Um, and so this is a quick backtrack, which was that she was like, you can go to your father, but my biological father didn't raise me. And so at the age of 12, um, he and I had a physical altercation that turned so violently that I was hospitalized and then um, the Child Protective Services got involved. And so the courts end up saying that we couldn't see each other um, at all, essentially. And so I was 18, though, when I got kicked out. So technically that like ordinance couldn't hold. So I went up to Ohio where he was um, to finish high school. And, so you, yeah. your things are so messed up. Yeah. The kind of the last resort is for you to have to go and live with a man, your biological father, who last time you saw him was hitting you and the police got involved, and then you're suddenly back with him. That's what you're just describing. Yes. Okay. And, and I want to be fair as I'm on a journey of healing at 33. You know, the story is the story of my childhood and my upbringing, but as God's called us to this world, and this world is broken, um, it's hard to help a broken world when you yourself are so broken. So I'm in his journey of healing. And so I want to be respectful to him to say that he himself didn't know how to be a father at that moment. And so um, while we don't have a repaired relationship at this moment, um, yeah, it, it came physical. And yeah, that's what happened. Um, and so I go there. We have it out. Um, physical altercation. Police get called. The way he locked the door, though, he knew the law that the police couldn't get to him. The door was locked, technically, because I was 18. So the police gave me a number to a homeless shelter and said, call them and figure it out. Um, and I wasn't going to do that, because when I called the homeless shelter, they were closed. So long story short, I was able to get um, to a car that was unlocked, praise God. And, and mind you, I'm in Ohio, and I'm not sure if you guys know the states, but in the states, in Cleveland, like the snow gets like up there, right? I have no shoes on. I have nothing but pajama pants. I mean, we just got into a brawl, and then I have like a cell phone in hand. And so when I'm finally in, or into the car, I, I can't sleep. I'm just, my mind is racing. And so I just, as you talked about before I came on the stage, I come back out to the behind the building. There was like this little picnic table and I just sat there and I'm weeping, y'all, like weeping. Every statistic I was told that I was going to be, I am. Not only am I a high school dropout, not only do I have no future, no direction in life, but like I just, I just have nothing left to give, right? This was my last resort. And so long story short, 
the only thing I could remember was the beginning of the story, which was my grandmother. And my, what my grandmother did, she raised her hand and she said, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And so that's the way I called upon him. And that's how he came. So all that tears, all that crying, you cannot describe it. Like it just ceased. And it wasn't just like it stopped, like there was peace. And so then my father had came back outside and he said something to me and I got ready to cuss him out and I felt physically ill. And I was like, it was the first time I had felt what I now know to be conviction. I never felt that day in my life. From that, we got kicked out of the apartment, became homeless, had to travel around a bit, finally graduated um, high school, praise God. And the gospel comes to bear as we get ready to transition over was because the next part. That was God's calling me, y'all, but I hadn't repented of my sins. I didn't understand what I had done. I didn't know the work of the cross yet. So Okay. Just want to say that's okay that you didn't have it all sewed up. We just I mean I'm choking up you're just telling this story. I'm choking up here. Like you know that's as that's as that's that's broken. What we've just heard, and it, it, honestly, if this is triggering anyone here and you just need to quietly head out, that's fine. But it's about to get more hopeful. But every kind of damage that get, can get done got done to you. And um, we're so sorry that happened. But you're at this moment, and you're, you cry out to God, you experience this peace, but the bottom line is you're still in your pajamas in the snow with a very dysfunctional relationship with your biological dad, with everybody that you've really looked up to and trusted has pretty much died on you. Yeah. All with seriously cool nicknames. <laughs> and, and, and so you kind of know God is real, but what happens next? And I'm, I'm saying this because for some of you here, that's where you are today. Some of you watching online, you've cried out to God. You kind of believe it, but things are still a mess all around you. That's exactly the point we're at in this story. If that's where you are today, I want to say it's not the end of the story. Mm-hmm. And just vaguely knowing there is a God and knowing that he cares for you and he hears your prayers is where it begins. But God is writing another story for your life if you keep saying yes to him. Maybe some of you today, things are so desperate. may even be in a, in, in a relationship where you, you know you've been or are being abused. And I want to say, Jesus is the one person who never lets you down. And it's not cheap. It costs everything. So just take us forward from that moment. You've cried out to God inspired probably as an answer to the prayers of your grandma right and and he you know he's met with you but what happens next and it's so funny you just said that i love your pastor guys he's just he really brought that full circle praise god you've told this story a hundred times and you're obviously more whole than me but i'm just hearing it like I mean, it's terrible, isn't it? And this isn't just your story. This is thousands of people. These are people in every one of our streets who don't know Jesus and don't know the answer. You know, even if you go through one of these things, abuse, violence against you, people you look to dying, broken families. I mean, this is the story of, of our world right now. And I'm, it is not cheap to say that Jesus is the answer, 
right? So sorry to interrupt, but keep no, going. I love that. And I just want to add to what you just said because, you know, that day when I was behind the um, thing and praying out to God, I had a conversation with my mom later on, and she said she just had a, a dream, and the dream was so vivid as something that was happening to me. Um, and it was exactly what I was about to do. Um, I was so desperate. I had called the strip club, and I was about to start stripping. Like, that's how the pig slop guys that I was in. I wanted my life my way. And God said, no, I want you to be mine, and I want you to be loved. And so I just wanted you to say, no matter I don't care what your thoughts are. I don't care how deep down or, or nasty or disgusting you think they are. God redeems, and he makes new, and he makes whole. Um, so um, how he did that was through two campus ministers. Um, um, they came and they, they gave me the gospel. I happened to be arguing with one of them um, because he was wrong. Um, Wait, at this time, you're, you're at which university? <laughs> oh, okay. It's the University of Mississippi in the best place ever. Okay. The original Oxford, Mississippi. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> you're, you're, you're at Oxford University. Yes, <laughs> Oxford University. <laughs> So um, these two guys gave me the gospel, Stephen Taylor and Thomas uh, Campbell. Um, and I was arguing with Thomas because he was telling me that a guy named Boosie, anybody know Boosie? Okay, ooh, that's not good. Well, Boosie, okay, he has a story, brother, okay? And I felt like Boosie was still Christian, and he kept arguing with me. And so this, uh, Steve just kind of looked at me when I was arguing with him, and he, he took me outside, and he said, okay, so what about you? Are you Christian? And I said, yeah, I'm Christian, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I had that situation with God now. And then... <laughs> And he said, okay, then if, if you're Christian, um, you know, why, why do you think you're Christian? How do you think you get into heaven? And I had all these lists of things of why I was going to heaven. And none of them was the sufficient work of the cross. Nothing, not one. It was because I prayed that prayer or because I called out to God and said, Jesus, 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 or because of my grandmother. But it wasn't any type of personal relationship. He picked up on that. He invited me to a Bible study. After the Bible study, they broke down the cross. And they told me about a God who loved this entire world and created it from the foundations of the world. From the foundations of the beginning, he had us in mind. And that in this community that he had with us, that we chose to push away him, to choose ourselves instead of him. And yet he still loved us, despite no matter what we had going on, he still loved us. And so at this, mind, I'm, at this time when they're saying the gospel, I'm remembering all the things that I've done to push God away all the things that would make him not come to me. I'm remembering everything. And he says, then, the way in order for me to get to God, he says, because God is here. We're here because we've separated ourselves. He said, you can try to go to church, Corey. It ain't going to get you there. He said, you can try to pray. It ain't going to get you there. He said, you can try all these good deeds, but it does not get you back connected to God. And so at this point in the story, I'm like, well, how do I get there? He said, well, God, you don't get there. God comes to you. And then he tells me about the son. He tells me that he comes down from heaven, takes on flesh, and lives a life that I could not live. He did not sin, and he was beaten upon and mocked and spit, but yet he was holy and good and just. And he did good things in this world, and yet he does that for, on our behalf. And then he goes to a rugged cross on Calvary and dies a horrific death. And it wasn't just the physical death of Christ that just floored me, but it was the spiritual it was the, all my penalty of my sin poured upon the sun, and it floored me. Mm. And this was the first time, and as we tie this to CSW, that I understood injustice. It was injustice on the cross because I was the perpetrator, and Christ took that on my behalf. And that changed wow. me forever. My entire life changed at that moment. You just dropped about three bombs on us. Oh. 
Good ones, not... Not bad, okay. Not bad ones. Like, bomb number one, you'd probably have vaguely called yourself a Christian before this point, but you'd never understood the cross. Never. And one of the reasons that we are doing this series, Crossroads Story, is we feel like that is a challenge to each of us to truly understand the, the, the cross. So hold that thought. The, the, the next one was, you just said, um, I realized I was the perpetrator of the injustice that caused a completely innocent man to die on the cross. Sometimes, I had someone say this to me last week, oh, when Christians get involved with social justice, it, it's them being woke and adopting a, a liberal agenda. And I felt so angry about that because we have, to be a Christian is to be radically committed to justice and to changing the world, right? Number one. But it's that paradigm you just dropped in there like a casual thing. That changes everything. When we fight injustice, recognizing that we were the perpetrators of injustice, but that in Christ we've been forgiven, it makes you both hate injustice more because of what it did to Jesus on the cross. And yet, you also, this is the radical piece, have a heart for reconciliation because even when, and we just heard you talk about this when you caught me up on your father and I can believe your grace going, he himself was broken. We fight injustice not in a binary way, us against the bad guys, but recognizing we were the bad guys. And so there's, do you understand, the gospel pushes into fighting justice, fighting injustice, but it does so with a paradigm that is towards reconciliation. Does that make sense? This is radical stuff, but you just kind of tossed it in there as like a little thing. So I want to make sure we didn't miss that. So keep going. So you're having this whole kind of download around the cross and the significance and what it means for your story. Keep going. Okay. What am I supposed to say next? I have no, <laughs> I have no idea. I feel like we should just invite people to become Christians again. Yeah. <laughs> We, so, had, we had an outline. What was our outline? Well, part of it was, it was a fairly high-level outline, in fairness, <laughs> uh, cooked up in Gales about an hour ago. But, um, oh, yeah, we, so, we have Gales in Guildford now. I just want to say that. Um, when Ken Costa was here, he said, oh, you have a Gales. Now, so... So... We are really wanting to grow in discipleship in our church. And I know that moving forward, and I want us to come on to your advocacy work in a moment. Actually, no, let's do the advocacy thing, and then we're going to come on to discipleship. When you were at, I can't remember whether it was at Mississippi or at Princeton, there was, there was a, a, a kind of a mascot, right, called, I think, something like Colonel Rep, that somehow represented something very unjust in your society. And you hit the national headlines, kind of fighting that and bringing in a new mascot, long before Black Lives Matter. Just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's right off the tail end of that story. So they tell me the gospel of the summer. I become a Christian. I go to Ole Miss in the fall. I graduated, high, well, when I, by the time I got out of high school, I had about a 1.7, praise God. Um, so I don't, oh, that doesn't translate here. Um, we have literally no idea what you mean. Yeah. 
I w- it was just really bad. Like, I should have okay. gotten in. Okay, like, so 1.7 is not good grades. Oh, like, the highest thing you can do is a 4.0. Okay, you should have left it 1.7 Winnicon. That's really impressive. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay, okay. So good. I was, yes, I was intelligent, and I had a 1.7. Uh, no, it was really bad. Uh, but I got in through a second chance program, and, and, and in that program, God was just really gracious to me to just love me and really help me to get mentors around me. And that discipleship would kind of come into play there. But in that conversation, what ended up happening was that when I came in, like four months later, there was an opportunity to start having conversations with fellow students in these retreat centers. But particularly this conversation was around racial reconciliation. Now my stepdad currently is and was growing up, um, the next stepdad after Shaggy passed was white. Um, And so my stepdad... um, Does he, please tell me he's got a great nickname. No, oh. I'm sorry. I know it's just a, it's just it's just not so cool being white, is it? Let's be honest. I know. It's just that is uh, well, you know. This but anyway, I didn't say anything. Anyway, but, you're step. Um, you're I, I, say I know, but there was a little silence, and we caught it. So, <laughs> so, so, so your stepdad, my stepdad. But my stepdad, um, unfortunately, um, he himself had had his own upbringing, um, and he wasn't. Um, he wasn't allowed to marry my mom because she was black. Yeah. So he was my stepdad by virtue for the first 10 years of just being with us. The last 10 years after his dad died, because that was the racist man who wouldn't let them get married, he then chose to marry my mom. So I grew up in a home understanding that two people can love each other and be together, but yet things are complex. So when I got to Ole Miss, it was my first chance to be able to be around other white people and Asian people and Hispanic people. Um, And that just wasn't the reality of Mississippi. It's very white and black, that's it. And I'm saying African-American black, not even African black or Irish white. It's just the people have been there since the the boats came to the shore. So with that being said, when I got to Ole Miss and I went to that, um, that retreat center, we had a conversation about our campus and how we were gonna to come together as students and bring healing and be one. And we talked about how much we wanted this and we said how we wanted us just to have relationships with one another. But we also talked about the barriers and the particular barrier that we identified was a symbol which was our mascot called Colonel Reb. And Colonel Reb, as you've already talked about, is um, to give you guys a picture is a, think, oh, here we go. So when I get lost here, I always look for a KFC. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's my North Star, praise God. Um, and Colonel Reb looks like kind of like the KFC guy. He's an old Southern um, plantation owner look, but with a big brim hat and a cane. Um, and so because of that monarch, when you have black people who are in that space, who have been subjugated for generations, many of us have had families who were slaves in the same town. My grandmother was a janitor in the same building that I would be student by senator of, right? So there's legacy there. Um, you start to feel a sense of maybe not being wanted or maybe not being cherished or being esteemed. And so whites and blacks agreed that that would be a barrier. And so we wanted to move forward about getting a new mascot. The issue with that, though, was that a couple years prior, the chancellor decided that, too, um, but the the KKK um, did a bomb threat, and the FBI had to get involved. And so, but again, I'm 18. I just heard the gospel. I'm ready. And so, and so we, I, just, I just felt like what it said in the Bible was true, that it comes into this world and it breaks. Ephesians 2 says that we are one new man. So if that is true and that scripture says that, then that just has to be what it is because everything else has been true so far. 
So I just kind of jumped off a cliff and I just went after it. I went after seeing how do I have a conversation with the student body about bringing us together under a new mascot. Um, with that conversation happening, unfortunately, there was um, great student support because of the intentionality of the people that I was working with to have real relationships. If you're trying to have relationships cross-culturally, cross-gender, you have to do it one-on-one. -on -one. You have to have real sincerity, have people into your home, have real life-on-life -life conversations. And from that space, we were able to kind of galvanize student support um, racial, again, black and white. I got the Black Student Union and the Black Gospel Choir to come to these big antebellum sorority houses and fraternity houses that still have black white staff that walk around like slaves, and, and yet we still had conversations. So things are not going to be perfect when you're trying to do justice. You have to understand that things are not binary as you talked about. They're a mess. But yet God says that he enters into that mess and can make it whole. Mm. So with that being said, um, I was 18 freshman, 18, 19 freshman, and I just had dreams. And people just kind of said, yeah, let's just do it. So I got all these signatures, which was I needed 10% of the student body population to say that they, too, wanted to move and have a mascot. But the issue was because culture is strong, particularly culture in Mississippi. Um, and so the wider um, side of the uh, people, they wanted Colonel Reb to come back and they wanted him to stay. He was already still the mascot de facto. He was at all the games. They still sold all the paraphernalia. He was still making millions for the university. And on the other side of it, you had the black people who wanted to move forward. So the petition read this. We want a mascot for Ole Miss. I didn't put old and I didn't put new. What I wanted was a sheet of paper to show the interest, the commonality, the meeting point for all people to be able to say that we can galvanize around that point. And I think that's really important when we start talking about racial reconciliation or becoming one as a body. Where are the common places that we can meet each other? Where can we go there? And then from there it became a conversation of, okay, we need to move forward though with a new mascot. So what was the new mascot? So before we get to the new mascot, there was a lot of pushback real fast. The KKK came. How fun is that? Uh, fully robed, but it was funny because they don't like color, right? But they have all the different colors with their robes. They had a purple one. They had a red one. They, it was like the reading rainbow. So when they came fully robed to protest and push back against me and another student who was doing another uh, change in the school, which was a song called Dixie with Love, which depicts a slave saying, oh, how he loves to pick cotton. Um, and and that, that was a white guy who was actually changing that song. So when the kicker came to push back against us, I mean, you're just... Until you see them in person, you don't, I don't think I quite understood. Um, and, and you just sit there and you just pray and you talk to God. Um, but the guy I was dating at the time, he knew I was ready. He brought me flowers. And then we went to protest. Um, and when we went and, and we just prayed, and it was quite remarkable to see the college, the white fraternity boys that you would have thought who would not have cared, they were the ones to tell the KKK to go to hell. They were the ones to say, push back against sin. And so it was interesting to see how God was starting to shift and starting to move and starting to hit us in the face with the things that were underneath, but he was bringing them to the surface. And so the new mascot, sorry. Um, um, so long story short, uh, after that ended and um, oh, so I had to, so they, the school said that I could just change the mascot. No, because the KKK go hang me. <laughs> like I'm not, 
It's like, because I was the front runner, so they were going to push it on me. So I said, what we're going to do a student body vote. We've done a lot of groundwork. Let's pick a ticket to the vote. And the students say yes, and let's go forward. So long story short, praise God, I got the vote of 78%. 78, wow. Yes, our way. So that's a culture changer. So things are moving. And so I stepped back once I got that part. And then they kind of brought in consulting firms and all these different things. The students themselves, I feel like empowering people and let them do what they want to do. They chose the black bear, which is native to Mississippi. But this is the issue with the heart. And this is the thing about justice. You cannot do a drop by justice. Unfortunately, because the school and other people didn't follow up with really bringing that out and discipling and loving and bringing racial reconciliation to the forefront. And for them, I think it was more of a money thing. Um, they decided to start, the, the, many of the white students um, started to push back and started to call it the nigger bear. And so all that work, all that prayer, all those things we've done, and then you see that happen. And so I left and I went to Cambodia, and I gave up (laughs) Uh, for a semester, my senior semester of college. I just went to Cambodia for women and sex trafficking and said, I'm not doing one more thing that Christ's name ain't in it. Like, he needs to be at the forefront, and people need to know that in that work I did in prayer, but it's different. And that's why I like to come under the banner of CSW. Because we, we, we embody Christian values while we do the work of justice. And you cannot do it divorced of the gospel. Right, right. There's such a snapshot there of the challenges we've got in taking on systemic injustice. It's just a mascot, right? But you have to pick a fight somewhere. It's going to be scary. You, you, some people, the very people who say, oh, it's irrelevant, will be the ones who will fight hardest when you actually try and change it. But then you you can get some progress and then you get the kickback. And that is why we have got to have endurance and focus and pick our battles carefully as we try and bring the kingdom of God, which is a kingdom of righteousness and justice, to society. So that's a brilliant snapshot. One final thing I really want to hear from you about, because as I've been reading your story, watching podcasts, listening to interviews with you, it's so strong in your story very strong, the role of discipleship for you. And this is like a a, a buzz thing, uh, particularly at the moment in this church. We roll out so far as as, uh, this beautiful, uh, originally Iranian um, model for us all, seeking every single one of us, seeking to both make disciples and be discipled. And so just talk to us about the role of mentoring and discipleship in your growth from this very, very broken background to now being the freedom fighter, the leader, the orator that you are now. Just tell us about how that happened through discipleship. Pete, I mean, I could not be who I am without it. There is no way from the story I told y'all to do a 180 like that and just go on fire. The Lord just brought this family and this community around me. I believe it's in Mark 3, but he talks about who is my mother, who is my father, but those who do the will of God. And he, what he's saying there is that my mom, while she may not have been in a place at that time to be able to disciple what's important to me with the love of the gospel, Beth Paul was, right? White woman, southern Mississippi, loved me. Uh, Stephen Taylor was a father to me. And I can go on and on and on. And when I look at just the amount of people who I can call mom and dad or sister or brother, or I can call, I'm I'm young, but spiritual child or Mm -hmm. big sister too, 
I'm just overwhelmed because I, I'm not painting the best picture of this, y'all, but my Christmases are spent at Beth's house. My Thanksgivings are at the annual relays. Like, my life is open to the body of Christ because you guys are my family. That blood that was shed that made me whole, he makes it very clear. You cannot say you love the God in which you have not seen and not love the brother in which you have. There is something about our connectivity to the body and doing it in such a way that we see ourselves as family in one. And so God, I don't know why, but he just gave me mentors after mentors after mentors, men and women. And there is something about that. And unfortunately in the South, um, especially in Mississippi, there's just a strong gender divide. But the issue with that, again, is I need to see men like you, Pete, men like Scott, men like Merv, who love God, love their wives, love their children, because I had so much brokenness with men that if I hadn't seen that, then I wouldn't be able to have relationships that are deep and foundational and great, you know, with nothing crazy happening, just holistically good. And so all that to be said, guys, if you are discipling, I know you may not be seeing fruit immediately because it was 13 years I did discipleship that there were times where I was like, oh, my God, what are we doing? So as, as we always say, discipleship will be your, your, your deepest lows, but will also be your greatest highs. Is Yeah, so discipleship, guys, if you're not discipling, I encourage you to disciple. Don't think about it in this, like, biblical way. You have to sit down with a book of the Bible and go verse by verse. Um, that was something that was really dear to my heart, as your other uh, Bill said, your pastor said, of your thinker, that's good. But then match yourself with someone who's a feeler if you don't want to go as stringently through. Discipleship, just really quickly, should be centered in the Word of God, right? But it flows out into the very being of your life. My disciples teach me how to do my taxes. That's discipleship. Like, right? It's holistic. So if you're intimidated or a little overwhelmed, it's okay. Take someone out to coffee, see if you guys vibe a bit, and then try to meet up with them regularly. But then also, as a person who's being discipled, you have to ask. A lot of the girls that I discipled, they were scared to ask older women in the church. And the older women were scared to disciple the younger women because they didn't think they had anything to offer. And I promise you, you do. Titus 2 makes it very clear that both men should disciple the younger and the women should disciple the, the younger girls. And so, guys, to live out the fullness of the gospel, I just believe discipleship has to be the center. As you said, it's not a buzzword. It is right there in the center. And that's what Christ chose to do when he was in his three years of ministry. He could have did it any other way, but he said discipleship is the way in which I will captivate this world. My glory will descend upon this earth. Wow. Uh, thank you, Corey, so much. Incredible. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, let's get the band back up. And I want to just quickly pray for a couple of people uh, now. And um, first of all, let's just make this a little bit messy. Where, Robbie. Um, Actually, sorry, I'm sorry to ask you to do this. Robbie, with his wife, Holly, heads up our student work here, okay? And they're doing a great job, 70 students or something. Any, any students are here, well done for getting out of bed on a Sunday morning. Most of our students come to the evening service. You may want to get down there now, but, Corey, would you just go and pray for Robbie, who's going to wave to you now, about, because it's such a key part of how you encountered Christ at university, and, and how you were discipled in that context. Now you're changing the world. I'd love you to pray over Robbie. Now listen, 
there's so many different things we could focus on out of Corey's story, but here's, here's the one. I, I think it might just be a, a whisper from the Holy Spirit. When you just hear about something like Safar, when you hear about the call to discipleship, it's really easy to go, I'm busy. Uh, you know, this, you know, I'm already overcommitted and all the rest of it. And then you hear someone like Corey start to share and you think, oh my goodness, if I could open my home and my life and my schedule to someone maybe as broken as she was and pour myself into her, there is no greater work I could do in my life than one day to watch someone speaking the way Corey just did, see what she's doing with her life, fighting injustice, and know that it's because I poured myself into her for 13 years that she's now going to change the world for the rest of her life. And you suddenly think, I don't know what the other commitments were that would stop me having space for someone like that, but I actually need to prioritize that. And I know many of you do this. There are extraordinary examples in this congregation of people Mike Stockwoods continually pouring his heart out. The number of people he seems to have breakfasts with. Uh, he, he has more breakfasts than any human being on earth. It's amazing that he's in such good shape. It, he, he pours himself out for people. There are many people. Clive Mathers here. Clive pours himself out for people. But, but I wonder if some of us, the call of the Spirit is just, would you open your heart, your life, your schedule? make disciples some of you are know that you're loaded with stuff you've come through many challenges you've learned stuff about how to do your taxes and you've learned stuff about how to study the bible and you don't know everything yet but you know you know something and um we just love you to really step forward saying i would love to be connected with someone that I could help disciple. You may already know that person. They might not even be a member of this church. They might not even be a Christian yet. Hallelujah. And some of you may be saying, I'm too much of a mess. I'm too broken. I just say, you know, if it's sin stuff, get right with God. But if it's long-term wounding and brokenness, that's going to be a process. And if you know more than someone else, then you can pass on what you know. You don't have to know everything yet. So I just want us to create a culture of mentorship and discipleship. If I phoned most of you and said, would you preach next Sunday? Um, Then probably what I found is most of the men would agree and some of the women would agree. Go figure. Because that's just what happens. Men seem to think even when they're totally incompetent, they can do anything. And women seem to think even when they're unbelievably competent, they can't. There's another issue for us to address at some other time. But far more important would be to quietly, anonymously be prepared to meet with someone maybe for an hour a week. Maybe not forever. Just say, look, I'll do it for a year and then at the end I'll find you someone to take you on after me you're not going to be left high and dry but just to make that commitment of time and some of you find it easy to write big checks but really hard to commit time and I just want to really challenge and encourage you in that so 
Listen, Jesus calls us all to make disciples. That's Matthew 28. Go into all the world, make disciples of nations. Some of us would rather make disciples of nations than disciples of one individual here or one there. But I believe that's invitation of the Spirit. And we have a structure that can help you. So far, it's just a brilliant resource online. Everything you need, it will give you the infrastructure. You sit down and you can just work through stuff. That will be a springboard for other conversations. And we have deliberately wanted to humble ourselves and say to the fastest growing church in the world, the Iranian church, would you bless us with something you've developed? Not to do that classic white Western thing of unless we've invented it or someone in America has invented it, it doesn't count. And so we are deliberately using Safar, which means journey. And so the resource is there. I believe the Lord's calling us to this. And we have just heard an unbelievable example of the difference that discipleship can make to break injustice and to bind up broken hearts and to raise up leaders. And so I just want to give an opportunity for people to, in a moment, stand who say, I want to step up to the plate with being a disciple maker. I want to tell you now that if we're swamped, we will not do all the work for you. We may not be able to connect every one of you neatly with the right person. You may need to go and find the person. And it might not start with you saying, I want to disciple you because they might run a mile. It might start with, hey, why don't you come for Sunday lunch next week? But I, I just want to give that invitation. And um, this is not just a general thing. This is specific. Those who know... This will cost me time. No one will be applauding in the background for at least five to ten years, but I'm going to do it because Jesus is asking me to do it. Is that okay? So uh, I don't want anyone to feel pressured to do this. And I also would hate anyone to stand if you don't really mean it. But if you're saying, you know what, Lord, I am available and I'm going to become proactive in seeking to bless, encourage, and shepherd someone a little younger than me in faith. Even though I don't feel I've got everything, I am prepared to do that. Uh, and I'll pay the price to do it. If that's you today, if you sense that from the Holy Spirit, not just from me standing here, I want to invite you just to stand wherever you are now. And this is between you and God. You, you stand as a decision before God. So good. So good. Jake, you're going to disciple even more people than your dad disciple. And just as your life is the fruit of a seed that fell into the ground and died. So you're going to see a massive harvest. And as the layers of grief keep unfolding, the Lord wants to say that the levels of revelation and resurrection are also going to keep increasing. 
And you are, this isn't like a fading photograph. This is something that's going to get brighter and brighter. You have, your father is so proud of you. And he so believes in you. And he is still praying for you as he always did. And this might sound weird, and don't ask me to give you too many Bible verses, but I believe your Father, who is in heaven with your Father in heaven, is still praying for you and is still advising you. And you are going to see fruit that is going to bring joy to heaven itself. So you keep pouring yourself into making disciples of people who don't know Jesus yet. You keep pouring yourself into people who know Jesus, but they're so broken. And you're going to raise up so many. And you made some decisions where you said, I don't really care if I have a title. I don't really care if I stand on a platform. I want to live my life in such a way as to change the lives of others. Many people who stand on platforms will have far fewer people at their funeral than you will have one day because of the way you are going to reap a harvest in a generation by pouring yourself out for person after person after person. And the Lord says start to budget for it, literally start to put some money aside for it, start to allocate time towards it, start to get ready for the way your house is going to get messed up. Maybe your father-in-law will help you with some new carpets from time to time. But get ready for what the Lord's going to do. So let's all just open our hands, shall we? Holy Spirit, we just thank you that this is you speaking the very word of Jesus Christ to us today. And I, I pray for each person standing now that the anointing of the Holy Spirit would fall upon you that you would hear the word of Jesus with fresh power in your life. Go into all the worlds. Make disciples of all nations. Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. Hear the authority in that, everything that he has commanded. Teach them to obey. Don't just teach them what I've commanded. Teach them to obey everything. Shape their lifestyle. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Into community and into family. And Jesus says the most stunning things to you. He says, and lo, I will be with you always. In Cafe Nero and at Waterloo Station and in your living room and wherever you choose to meet, I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Amen. So receive the commission and go do it. Amen.